Hello and welcome to the Penn Health X podcast. My name is Ryan O'Keefe and I'm a fifth year MD MBA candidate at the Perlman School of Medicine and the Wharton School. Today's episode is a conversation with one of my colleagues, Sandy Varatharaja. Sandy is a second year MBA student and a member of the healthcare management program at Wharton. In the episode, we discuss what drew her to the healthcare space, her previous experiences, including interning at the White House, consulting, and working for CityBlock. We also discussed the decision to get an MBA and some of the interviews she's done for the Pulse podcast by the Wharton Digital Health Club. We end with some things she's most looking forward to in the coming years. It's a great conversation full of a broad array of topics. If you like the Penn Health X podcast, you should definitely check out Pulse, which is a podcast created and maintained by the Wharton Digital Health Club, where they interview leaders in the digital health space. Anyway, let's get to my conversation with Sandy. on the line with one of my co-first-year MBA classmates, Sandy. Sandy, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ryan. So as I mentioned, we're going to get you going with a nice softball. So tell me, what initially drew you to the healthcare space? My parents are both physicians, and as any good Indian kid, um, <laughs> I was expected to, uh, you know, get straight A's, go be pre-med in college, and eventually go to medical school. And I think, you know, when I graduated high school was right around when we were recovering from the recession as a country. And even mm-hmm. then, you know, I was a little bit scarred and felt like I needed to pursue a sustainable professional path. And so I was pre-med in college. I studied biology, but always had this pull towards disruptive innovation and public policy and kind of the intersection between science, tech, and the public sphere. And um, so at Georgetown, where I went to undergrad, I actually double majored in exactly that, science, technology, and international affairs. Hmm. I went to school in DC. And so I think my perspective on the impact I wanted to make in healthcare was very much shaped by growing up near DC and then going to school in DC and wanting to make an impact on the political sphere. And then also being interested in how tech enabled healthcare solutions can help drive scale and efficiency. So was always interested in healthcare. I thought I would be a clinician and upon graduating decided I didn't want to be at the interface of clinical practice and decided to go into consulting and the rest is history. Yeah, and I think that that story is certainly um, on brand from what I've gotten to know about you over the last year. Um, that makes a lot of sense then to hear kind of that as your origin story. But I am curious. So how you, you mentioned that you were you went in pre-med. Um, how, how far along did you get until you realized, like, did you still have to like suffer through a lot of those crummy orgo classes and whatnot? Yeah, um, definitely suffered through orgo. It really sucked. <laughs> <laughs> I took the MCAT as well. And Ooh. it it went well and was really all set to apply the summer after my senior year. At that point, I was planning to take a gap year and was consulting. And literally a couple of weeks before the application was due, you know, I had my recommendation letters lined up, had my essays written. And one of my managers at my consulting job pulled me aside and she had gone through a similar decision process years earlier and I think had kind of seen me as her little protege and grilled me on why did I want to go to school, Hmm. uh, literally in the office in a phone room. 
without any advance warning. And I broke down in tears as dramatic as it sounds. I like oh, couldn't man. give her a reason. And you know, the, the silver lining is I'm, I'm glad I didn't do it because I think to be a really good physician, not only is it a, a significant time and financial commitment upfront to go to school and really study and go to residency, obviously, but I think to be a good physician, you need to be able to build and invest in really trusting relationships with patients and take on an incredible amount of stress. And that just wasn't something that uh, I was ready to commit to at that point. So got all the way, decided not to do it. And personally, I'm very glad with that decision, but a lot of my peers and best friends from college are now in residency, graduating Mm -hmm. from residency. And I'm so proud watching all of the great work that they're doing, especially now on the front lines with COVID-19. Yeah. Wow. To reflect on a few things there, I think that's so unbelievably interesting that, you know, little moments like that turning points in our lives and in our careers, um, having a mentor yeah. that kind of took you aside to do that and, you know, in a, a closet, no less, but I think, yeah, it's, I, so it you, was you mean horrible. To, <laughs> a really mean, dark moment crying in a closet. Yeah. Oh my gosh. In front of a yeah, mentor. So you mean to tell me that, yeah, saying what you told me that you have, um, highly demanding Indian parents wasn't a good enough explanation for her of why you wanted to go into medicine. Yeah. Funnily enough, um, when I talked to my parents after that conversation, they, of course, like any Indian parent would say upon being confronted by their child that they're demanding, my (laughs) parents were like, no, we're not. We just, you know, the sky's the limit for you. You can do whatever you want. We want you to be creative and entrepreneurial. And I'm like, where were you the last 21 years of my life when I was, you know, grueling, pulling all-nighters through Orgo? But for them, I think as immigrants to, so my parents are both Indian or Um, take a step back. My parents are from South Asia, from India and Sri Lanka. And when they immigrated to the US, their number one goal was to have stability and they were in pure survival mode. And so I think unintentionally, they projected a lot of that attitude onto me. Mm -hmm. And when they saw that there were other sustainable career paths outside of directly being a physician, whether it's on the business side in consulting or at a tech company or at an even bigger services company, they they just wanted me to to have a guaranteed future, and that mm. was really their end goal, not necessarily to be a physician. Uh, so I actually think now our relationship is better than ever. They're super proud, and mm. and I think grateful that I didn't go to medical school because they knew it wasn't right for me personally. Yeah, and I have to say, um, it's it's not easy to, you know, it sounds like you, obviously this, this memory of this closet is one that you look so back traumatizing. on. Yeah. It's like a traumatizing <laughs> moment, but I think that it's, it's really important because having an existential moment like that, or, a, a, a moments of self-realization, I think that for many people, unfortunately that comes far too late. Um, mm-hmm. and so to, to have a moment like that before getting on the train, so to speak, as I like to refer to it as of, of medical school and medical education, um, I think, I think, yeah, it clearly was a really important decision. And it sounds like, yeah, it sounds like all these years later, at least you yeah, have <laughs> some sense of clarity and it seems like you made the right call for yourself. Right. You I can laugh about it later on, but yeah, you're, exactly. you're right. I think agnostic of this decision, we all have those moments where we feel like we've built up these expectations for decades of what we should be or what we should be doing. And the moment you let go of them, like one, it's very cathartic, which is why I was crying in that closet. But Um, I think we owe it to ourselves to have that hard conversations with ourselves. Like no one is paying attention to the movie that is your life. Um, So just like really confront those hard decisions and go with your gut and don't look back. 
And that may not be decide not to be a doctor, but it could be something else. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe then to transition, so you mentioned that you, you know, spent your time in the DC area. And so one of the unique opportunities you had through that and with your interest in policy was getting to intern at the White House. Can you tell us about that? Yep. Yeah, it was one of my first real work experiences and so privileged I got to have that very early into my career. So the White House has an Office of Science and Technology Policy or OSTP. And, you know, the U.S. CTO falls under that office. And effectively, it's a team of advisors that make policy recommendations to the president. So they don't have direct kind of rulemaking authority or, um, you know, any budgetary authority. But their whole goal is to be the science. Sorry, their whole goal is to be the president's kind of mental extension into what's happening in science and technology Mm -hmm. and advise him on that. So. A lot of the projects I worked on were around healthcare innovation. So at the time, this is 2014, um, meaningful use was still a big topic. Uh, ICD-10 was a big topic. So did a lot of work around EMR interoperability. What does that mean for healthcare innovation? And then I also helped on a lot of other ancillary initiatives, like what should the White House's perspective on secondary education should be, advanced nano manufacturing, like topics I had was very green on. Yeah. Um, and I think I learned a couple of things there. Oh, another cool thing was I did get to meet President Obama, which was an, mm-hmm. an awesome moment. But I think one of my favorite moments was meeting the healthcare.gov team. So hmm. kind of the rescue team that was charged with uh, helping get the website off the ground and actually troubleshooting it when it completely crashed um, mm-hmm. on it during enrollment. And hearing their stories about sleeping in the office on mattresses and Mm. constantly being in meetings. Like at the time, this was President Obama's biggest policy agenda item. And so they were under so much stress and hearing their stories about just like wanting to so desperately be a public servant and being willing to give up their personal time, their paychecks Mm -hmm. from previous VC firms or large insurance companies, like people coming together for the greater good of American society that really inspired me and shed a different light on people working in the government. I think at the time you see the headlines, you hear about senators and representatives and kind of, um, you know, not necessarily painted in the greatest light or perhaps in a light that shows them to be committed to their constituents. But I saw very much the opposite when I was working at the white house, like people are really committed to making lives better for all Americans. And, that's, that's kind of shaped a lot of my professional goals since then. Yeah, no, that's, it's a really interesting um, experience that you got being able to see that kind of on the front lines. I mean, certainly at this point now, looking back, that team is definitely a very uh, storied team and what they were yeah. able to accomplish uh, with what they kind of went in with. So yeah, that's really cool. So was that um, the team you're referring to is the one that was led by Andy Slavitt? Yep. yep. Cool. Did you get to meet him at that point or... I did not meet Andy, but I met a couple of other members of the team, including um, like Ryan Panchadasaram, uh, who is now a partner at Kleiner Perkins, um, and a couple other folks. Basically, I don't know if you've ever seen the time cover that's all red, and it has this group of people, including Andy and Ryan and others that were all kind of designated rescue team, but they mm-hmm. all sat, a lot of them sat under the CTO's office, which is why I got to, to meet mm-hmm. them, so... Yeah, I think it's interesting if you look at a little bit about their backgrounds and kind of what they've done since then. I mean, 
I mean, Andy in particular, obviously he's, yep. he's maintained a relationship with some Wharton people and he's, um, uh, yeah, he, he, I think he did an interview for the Wharton healthcare yep. conference magazine. And yeah, I think it's also interesting that a lot of them since then still, despite, you know, moving on to VC or whatever, uh, roles that they've taken on in the tech worlds. Um, still look at their roles as being public servants and, you know, being involved in policy and government because I think of Andy particularly, I mean, with what he's been tweeting out about and getting involved in this pandemic, it's been pretty astounding to follow as someone who's not at least, he has no, he does not owe that to anybody necessarily, you know, and yet he's doing it anyway. Yeah. It's also interesting to see this dynamic of public sector versus private sector. One of the questions I've asked myself often is, should I make the leap right now in my late 20s to go work in the public sector and for the government if that's so desperately what I want to do? And I've heard that the pros there are like, at a very young age, you can own your own P&L. If you're talented, you can climb really quickly, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. The cons are obviously like you take a salary cut and oftentimes those positions are based on the administration. And so there may not be a lot of stability every eight years. And um The other argument is in the private sector, you often have a lot more resources and less, let's say, scrutiny Mm -hmm. on how you can impact different levers, for example, in healthcare. And you also just have a lot more resources to work with. So um, it's cool to see a lot of them still making impact from the private sector. And it, it shows me that you can still be an influential public figure, even without necessarily go running for office. Yeah, that's really interesting. And maybe you can kind of um, elaborate further on some of the advice you've gotten or what you've learned about that and what your mentors have said, because that's something I think a lot of people who listen to this think about is they're either interested in policy or they're interested in being involved in the public space. And yeah, it's not an easy decision of, you know, what is the best route to do that? I've, I've certainly gotten advice that if you want to do it, do it early when right. you're younger. And like you said, yeah, we're like taking a, a quote unquote pay cut isn't like the biggest deal in the world to you. Right. Whereas, you know, if I'm not sure what you're career aspirations necessarily are, we'll get there, but I'm not sure right now. But yeah, if like you are the partner in a VC firm or whatever, then transitioning and being, you know, a a public servant, that will be a very significant difference between, you know, versus a first year out of Wharton, um, you know, comparing that to a to a government salary. It's it's different, but it wouldn't be quite as as different. Yeah. I think there's no right answer and I've thought about my career very opportunistically, which is why I think I've jumped around more than probably the average person my age, but, you know, take opportunities as they come. So 2020 is an election year, no idea what's going to happen. And maybe that means in 2021, instead of going and working for a VC or a tech company, I um, joined the administration, who knows. But in terms of advice I've gotten, it's been on both sides. Some people have said, you know, get your 10 to 15 years of industry experience, become a C-suite, person and then leverage your industry experience to then transition into the government and have really deep domain expertise. And then on the other hand, I've heard, you know, you're young, you might as well do it now. You'd never know what kinds of conflicts of interest might arise later on, depending on you or what your spouse Mm. is doing or your family ties are doing that may actually hinder you from taking a position in the government. Mm. Um, So the short answer is I have no idea. And in light of current events, I'm trying not to plan too far into the future. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no kidding. So we'll see. We'll see. That's cool. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing some of that advice, I think. Yeah, definitely. I think it's been more in the zeitgeist recently. 
due to the last couple of administrations um, in terms of yeah, like the revolving door of people yeah. who kind of come and go in these high powered positions in the government and, you know, the concerns of bias and self-serving nature. Um, and so I think it is, it's something that's important that we are always considering. I think that bringing up the conflicts of interest and it's not even you, I, I never even thought about it, but it's also like whatever your partner's up to, if you have someone in the industry or somebody who's working in tech or whatever it might be. So I think that that's, that's really interesting uh, to hear that that's something that people need to think about. But yeah, yeah. I, I think based on what you said, I would agree that we're going to have to at this point now take it one day at a time, worrying about what our spouse will be up to in 30 years and whether they'll preclude <laughs> yeah. us from uh, taking a high powered government role Maybe isn't yeah. the, uh, the best use of our current thing. Yeah, I haven't spoken with my fiance about it, but I know his career aspirations are to be a CFO of a public trade, publicly traded company. And that would certainly prohibit me from probably holding elected office, if not legally, probably from a constituent perspective. Um, I don't know that that would paint me in the best light. Uh, so we'll see. No hmm. idea. Well, they have it. So yeah, we talked a little bit about the experience you've had in the public domain. So then you also had experience, as you mentioned, you jumped around a lot, but you have some experience uh, working in consulting in the healthcare space. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So I worked at the advisory board company, which is now owned by Optum, it was purchased about two years ago. And the advisory board is known very well for a lot of research it does into value-based care and alternative payment models and how to arm providers to transform to taking on risk. I was on the consulting side, so working with hospitals and health systems, really on a couple different things. One bucket was EMR optimization. So again, back in 2014, a lot of major health systems were just installing multi-billion dollar EMR projects, you know, installing Epic, Cerner, um, uh, and lots of others. And our projects often oriented around how can you configure your EMR system such that providers aren't burnt out with really suboptimal workflows and how can you therefore improve quality for patients. So we would do a lot of data analysis, do a lot of shadowing at practices. I oftentimes spent my weeks traveling to random corners of the country, like Mm -hmm. Middle of nowhere, Michigan, uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania, lots of just, uh, I think what was cool about that experience was having grown up, you know, or at least spent my formative years in DC, it was cool to experience what healthcare looks like in not urban areas. So traveling to all of these places and, you know, seeing that the only place I could eat food was at a Sheets gas station across from my Fairfield Inn. Like, I can't even think about what local residents, how they're thinking about eating healthily and stuff like that. Um, so I think that shaped my perspective very early on and gave me a really solid foundation for issues in healthcare. For example, EMR interoperability continues to be a hot topic that we've talked about for decades and we have no end in sight for. Um, yeah, I was going to say, um, hate to break it to you, but obviously <laughs> <laughs> you're well aware yeah. of that. Yeah. From the, yeah. the clinician or I guess clinician and training side. Yeah. yeah. There's uh there's still quite a lot of gripes and quite a lot of uh, work to be done in that. For sure. Yeah. A lot of burnout, a lot of alert fatigue. Um, oftentimes we were taking the same playbook of recommendations and using them over and over again, which could be a statement on consulting generally, but I think is also a good statement on healthcare. Like physicians are really burnt out. These EMRs that promised automation and easy data access and analysis and 
the haven of population health finally being able to be achieved. Like we are so far from achieving those things. And in fact, perhaps we've taken a little bit of a step back by introducing these really clunky, outdated, not user-friendly systems just because they're quote unquote functional. Um, so I don't know if you have a different perspective on that, having been an actual end user of an EMR, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm in a, I'm a very interesting uh, cohort in terms of coming into the medical field in that all I've ever known is electronic health records. Yeah. And so I, I very rarely, if ever deal with, you know, the paper charts. Um, sometimes we'll have to, you know, we, of course we still use faxes and when we're, when a patient gets transferred to the hospital, university of Pennsylvania or any other places, that's still unfortunately one of the most common ways in which we'll get records. And that can be a complete, you know, on, it, it's, it's shocking sometimes to see like, okay, this is like the paper trails that patients leave behind at these other hospitals that then get faxed to us. And I have to see yep. through it. And I'm like, I can't believe it. This is how I'm figuring out what they did with this patient. There's like 200 pages or plus yeah. of just notes. And I'm like, I can't, and it's all over That's the place nuts. and just making it. Yeah. So there's, there's certainly some examples where like, I can't believe this is still what happens. But by and large, I think, um, while I agree that there's certainly many gripes, it's far better than what it used to be. Um, it, I think it's, it solved some problems and created new ones. But yep. my, my overall opinion is that it's just, it's in its adolescence. Um, we're still figuring things out. Um, and so it, any major change in an industry like that is going to cause a lot of issues and a lot of annoyance. Yep. Um, so I certainly agree that there's still so much to be done, but I'm very hopeful overall. I think, unfortunately, the business models of a lot of those major EHR companies don't necessarily um, support interoperability and don't support right. cross-collaboration, which I think is probably the biggest issue, whereas other countries don't really have that problem if it's a national health service in the UK or whatever it might be, where they kind of have one major platform that everybody seems like they use and it's all kind of connected. We kind of have that sort of here with the VA. Um, yep. It's a very old system, but it's it works perfectly fine. And it at least you know, no matter where this patient goes in the country, <laughs> that their chart will be the same no matter where you are. So right. yeah, I think, I think I'm of two minds of it. Like I, I totally agree. Like it's a lot of it's a mess. We kind of dropped the ball with, you know, pushing through and, you know, high tech. And, you know, I think it was, yep. that was overall the right intention, but we just kind of bungled it a little bit and that, yeah, we're, we're still in the adolescence phase. We're in that weird phase where you're still wearing hot topic and your body's still growing. And so <laughs> <laughs> that's basically, that's basically where we are. I love EHRs. that analogy. That's amazing. Yeah. We're still figuring ourselves out, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Two comments on that. One, you have you sound a little bit like my dad. So my dad is a VA physician. He's worked there for 25 years and he like his dying argument will be that the US should roll out the VA's EMR nationally as like this active public service and to have a standardized platform that all physicians are using because he was using this in like the late 90s early 2000s and mm -hmm. it boggled him that come 2010 like that was when we were starting to have the conversation about rolling out EMRs more broadly. Um, so that's just one comment. And the other is your point about business models and incentivizing interoperability for private entities. I think this is exactly why I'm so interested in public policy. I think healthcare more than any other industry, the momentum is very much defined by regulatory guardrails. And so no matter mm -hmm. what innovative technology you're building, if you know, whether it's EMR interoperability or value-based reimbursement, it's just not going to happen and unless the government creates white space for it to happen. And 
yeah, maybe that's a contrarian opinion, but that's another reason that I'm so interested in perhaps working for CMS one day or HHS, because I think a lot of the innovation stems from what those folks are doing. Yeah, I would, I would um, 100% agree. I think that's one thing, especially spending some time at Wharton and thinking more broadly about the larger trends in healthcare, as opposed to the, the single patient in front of you, which is often how we think about things in, in the medical field and how we're trained in medicine. Um, I think that's one thing that I've constantly been surprised by is just how much influence and power uh, policymakers have. Yeah. Um, I think previous to this experience, I would have kind of assumed, well, you know, power seems to go back and forth between two parties and they, you know, they have similar goals in the end, but have different yeah. ways they want to go through it. And it's kind of like this right. back and forth and you're never really getting the football down the, um, down the field as much as you'd like to. And so it's just kind of a slog, but then recognizing like every now and then there's just this moments of policy that get through and like, you know, some of these you know, Frankenstein bills that are end up being somehow bipartisan and there's all this regulation in it that ends up, you know, meaning tons and tons of implications down the line without anybody even like realizing it, <laughs> you know, like some right. of these just huge legislative packages that get through. I mean, that's, you know, that's the federal level. Um, so I think that's one thing is realizing just how much policy plays a role in setting, um, setting the incentives and setting, yeah, kind of like the overall, um, future directions of healthcare and then just yeah the effects of the local policy i think that's one thing that i would personally be interested in in the future more so than i would have expected is that you know realizing obviously this is something that's hackneyed and we talk a lot about at wharton but how healthcare is all local and realizing that at least um when it comes to a policy perspective it, it doesn't just have to be something that is federally mandated when it comes to right. something like ehrs yeah it would be certainly helpful obviously if we're talking about interoperability but other smaller scale things um don't necessarily have to be done at the level of you know the federal government where everybody is talking about it it's not like everything is the affordable care act yeah 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 so thinking about rounding up before we get to the mba and a little bit of time at wharton rounding out your your resume before then so you spent some time at city block so can you tell us what city block is and what you were doing there yep so City Block is a Series B startup that spun out of Alphabet, um, actually Alphabet Sidewalk Labs, so an incubator that Google's parent company has around urban innovation. And City Block's mission is to address the social determinants of health for vulnerable populations. And they do that with a full stack primary care model. So they open clinics um, in urban areas, including Brooklyn, that was their first market. And they take on risk for very high risk um, Medicaid populations. So they partner with payers who um, have taken on risk for Medicaid patients. City Block defines who might be most impactable by care, meaning they might have high housing insecurity, high food insecurity, high transportation insecurity as well as multiple chronic conditions like CHF, diabetes, depression, hypertension, mm -hmm. anxiety, and high drug costs, and says, hey, we, you know, with the combination of our innovative care model and physical clinics and a tech platform that we're building to more efficiently drive care plans, we can actually lower the cost of care for these high-risk Medicaid patients while improving quality. So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of what City Block does. I loved my time there. It was the perfect chance for me to be able to marry margin and mission in my career. I previously thought that you can't do impact-oriented work without, you know, being profit-minded. And City Block was able to define a business opportunity, which is 
these high-risk Medicaid patients drive a disproportionate majority cost for the Medicaid program. And so there's a financial incentive to be able to drive value there. And then from a mission perspective, oftentimes these populations are, you know, from minority backgrounds, living in really subpar conditions and frankly falling through the cracks of our safety net system. And, you know, one of my overarching philosophies in life is I want to dedicate my career to marginalized populations. And so mm-hmm. City Block gave me the opportunity to do that. Yeah, it is it is a really cool company and an interesting business model because it is it is galling in some ways that, you know, these these tend to be unfortunately um, patient populations that are especially difficult to take care of and to take care of well. And as you mentioned, drive a lot of costs in the system. And I think that's because in a lot of ways, the system is failing them. And it's so then for someone to, you know, I think that most insurance companies, and this, this might not be true, maybe you can correct me, but I'd say tend to want to avoid or run a lot of business models try to run in the opposite direction of patient populations like this. And so to run headfirst and tackle this problem, um, I think is, is, is daring in many ways. And I'm sure a lot of people, it's uh, caused a lot of head scratching when they were initially going around and pitching this as an idea, but maybe, so me not me being a little naive to how it all works, maybe what, um, the reason why it works well, aside from the fact that they're, you know, a great company with good management and a good idea is that this is such a huge problem. And there's the costs are so high that even if you're able to like, you know, marginally change how the care is delivered and how it's done, you can still see pretty huge changes and huge savings. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. You hit the nail on the head. I think ultimately it will take city block is not going to be the be all end all solution. And it very well knows that you need like to be able to fix rising costs in healthcare. You have to stare these ugly issues in the face, like social inequities that have been driven by like hundreds of years of racial inequality in the U S by zip code. Um, inequality in terms of socioeconomic status, like no, a lot of venture back companies are not going after those things. They're going after the, you know, the worried well millennials or, you know, maybe even Gen Xers who are fairly healthy, commercially insured, don't have a lot of impactable costs, but are willing to pay out of pocket because they can. Um, For me, that's just not, it's an interesting problem, but it's not a meaningful problem to, to be able to dedicate my time to. Um, your point about how the cost bucket is so large that any solution that's targeting this is going to be meaningful. I do agree with that, but I think CityBlock has a really ambitious mission. They want to serve 10 million Medicaid beneficiaries by 2025 or 2030 rather. And, you know, I don't think any company in the past has ever said something like that before. They've very much taken the conservative approach of, well, these are it's so hard to manage care for these populations that anything will work. I think CityBlock is is really trying to be ambitious in this space, unlike any other company before. Yeah, well, thanks for giving a little more color to that. I'm curious, I'm going a little off script here, um, but in thinking about um, you, you mentioned obviously a common theme that keeps coming up is is impact, and you 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 mentioned wanting to serve marginalized communities in some capacity throughout your career. And I'm curious, obviously, you will maybe get to this towards the end, but one of the things you're going to be doing, or you're currently doing, and will be doing for the next number of weeks, is working in in venture capital. They're having a position with a with a VC firm. And I'm curious what you think of impact investing as a concept. 
-hmm. there's definitely a lot of back and forth. Um, I worked for the Wharton Impact Venture Associate Group this year, yeah. and one of the most common back and forths we had was, you know, whether you could consider something an impact investment is technically all healthcare investing, impact investing. And, you know, our, our friend we were referring to earlier, Andy Slavitt is, you know, uh, at the head of one of those firms and he does not like the term impact because it insinuates that you're going to be sacrificing return um, mm -hmm. because of, you know, the mission or whatever it might be. So I'm just, I'm curious to get your kind of high level thoughts on, on how you view that if you, if you have them. Yeah. This is certainly a hairy question, as you said, defining what impact is in healthcare, which is such an inherently impact-focused industry, like enabling people to take better care of their bodies and their lives. So this is something I struggled with across the past year, also participated in an impact investing group on campus, and repeatedly the investment committee would ask us, like, why is this different? <clears throat> Excuse me why is this different than what a big health tech investor might invest in? Like, why is this impact focused? So I think perhaps, you know, this is just my personal thesis, of course, but maybe it goes back to the people that you're serving, marginalized populations that often get a disproportionately less share, few, smaller share of venture dollars. A lot of solutions focus direct to consumer, again, on the commercially insured or for employer insured populations. and Oftentimes, Medicaid um, and black and brown populations are, are left out of the spotlight. Another way to look at it, especially in light of COVID-19, is one interesting trend I've noticed is we no longer are constrained by, uh, let me take a step back. Oftentimes, venture dollars go to concentrated capitals, New York, San Francisco, Boston, Chicago, and now that no longer matters. Like everyone's doing their work remotely. And so maybe impact investing in healthcare becomes, what are some solutions that people who are talented and smart are doing in Dallas or Nashville or Denver that often wouldn't have gotten attention before because it takes a really inconvenient flight to get to that entrepreneur's location. Now you're able to hop on a Zoom call and pitch your idea. Maybe it's that, um, sourcing solutions outside of the bubbles that we continue to source solutions from. So I don't have an answer to it, but that's kind of my thesis. Yeah, I certainly wasn't expecting you to solve the dilemma. Um, yeah. But the, yeah, it's, it is, that is really a, a cool take on it that it'll open up to maybe geographies that are more underserved or not traditionally met in the venture community. And that alone could be impactful if, if capital is flowing to those ideas in those communities. So I, I like that yeah. take. I think, yeah, it is. Um, it has certainly been interesting having some of those discussions. I think at least the the model that I worked in, the Wharton Impact Venture Group, um, we did have like pretty clear criteria that we would use to consider something in impact investment, such as like you mentioned, serving um, minority or underserved populations, um, and then having some sort of like you know, if it, if you can consider this big a big transforming an industry essentially. But even that is so. Uh, subjective and you can kind of like take to me many different things. Um, and yeah, so we, we, we often went back and forth of, you know, it, it kind of just came down to like, you know, does it just feel like an impact investment? <laughs> you know? yeah, and right. that's not really a very useful framework with yeah. to actually like uh, evaluate something. Yeah. 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 So I think we, we talked a little bit about that, that you were involved with, uh, I didn't realize you were involved with that, but that's awesome. Um, but to, to, to go back a little bit and think about, um, 
um, before we talk about a little bit about Wharton and the, the, the Pulse podcast, which is, you know, one of uh, the coolest things I think that you've been involved with and created a lot of really cool content is the decision to go and get an MBA. So I'm curious, uh, based on you, you mentioned you jumped around a few places, we're getting a lot of experiences and you, you seem to be, or seem to have been forming this narrative arc of how you were hoping your career would go in the health space. So what, what was it exactly you were hoping to get out of spending time getting an MBA at Wharton? Yeah, it was a really hard decision because the day I got into Wharton, I also started at City Block Health. And so I had this parallel conversation with myself for several months on, should I even go to business school? I'm in a really great place at the perfect stage of company with the perfect mission and product. Or do I take the long-term view of, look at leaders in healthcare, oftentimes they do have graduate degrees, if not MDs, MBAs. Mm-hmm. And especially as a woman and a minority woman, I felt like I needed that extra gold star to lend credibility when I did pursue some of these more ambitious goals, like potentially starting my own company one day or going into public policy. And a lot of the advice I got from folks was with your pedigree, you certainly can achieve what you want. You know, I would consider myself a hustler personality. I really work for things that I really want. Um, But having the MBA would just lower that Uh, sort of resistance significantly. And so I have found that to be true. Like at the MBA, anytime I say I'm a Wharton student, people are willing to take my phone calls. The alumni Mm -hmm. community has been incredible. And most importantly, the fellow students like yourself, like I've just learned so much from having conversations with you all, getting wine with you all, um, you know, being in classes and having discussions about different topics in healthcare. And so I think it's really forced me to think about healthcare from different lenses that I wouldn't have gotten outside of the MBA. Secondly, as you alluded to before, I wanted to test out different hypotheses for what I was interested in pursuing next. So I had gotten startup experience. I had worked at two venture-backed companies. I was interested in investing, and I was also interested in exploring product management at a big tech company. And so I came into business school saying, this will afford me the mind share to like go have conversations with people about both of those ideas and actually have space to go test it out through internships. And so for me, the MBA was a really personal decision. It's such a big financial commitment. And, um, you know, hopefully what I've been told is that it will drive value in the long term. But all I'll say is it's a very personal decision for everybody. And I'm glad I came into it with a very clear idea of what I wanted to get out of it because that has made it all the more meaningful. Yeah, no, that's, that's no doubt. And uh, it is interesting, you know, uh, you were highlighting some of what you assumed and what you, uh, or, or what, yeah, what you came in assuming the value was going to be and kind of like the, the reasons you should do it and then kind of how that's met your expectations. And one of the, the people that I've been following um, their opinions on how, you know, education is going to change going forward in light of coronavirus and, everything's gone virtual with Scott Galloway and he, yep. yeah, he, he frames a lot of very similar things you were saying about like, what is the value here? And it's like, well, it's the brand. It's, this is, it's a pretty much, I mean, Wharton, what it is, it's a luxury brand that yep. kind of gets you into the club. And like you yep. said, you have the EDU email and now you can reach out to these, you know, the healthcare management program here is absolutely astounding and the, the yep. network that it you know leads you into. And so at the end of the day, like, of course, you know, a lot of the coursework that we're getting and learning the business of language and whatever it is, is, is incredibly valuable. But at the end of the day, you know, the decision to go to a, a business school in particular, is a lot of that value has been driven there. And it seems, it seems to me like, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but based on what you were saying, it sounds like you've been getting 
what you were hoping out of it and that, you know, you've, you've certainly been able to, to use what the actual value is of, you know, quote unquote, Wharton brand. Yeah. Um, I will say very happy with it so far. And interesting, like with podcast, anytime I reach out to somebody, like I've had crazy ideas of people uh, we should interview that we previously would have held back because we thought we weren't good enough for them. And we have CEOs personally responding to our emails from like very well-known healthcare tech startups. So um, I think a large part of that is due to the Wharton brand. And also people see students as very harmless, curious, hungry to learn people. So that's been helpful. I will say, you know, one of the themes we've been talking about is how do we reduce inequities and reduce barriers for marginalized population. And I, I, I think secondary education is very much one of them. I would like to be able for all of us to be able to use our privilege to help more marginalized populations that may not have access to the social capital that comes with the Wharton brand or even just the general access to influential people that that comes with being an MBA graduate. Yeah, undoubtedly. And I think we we luckily have a lot of really uh, great role models that have come out of the community and are doing just that, um, that we can look to that for guidance on kind of how to approach some of these challenges um, as we think about it and as you particularly are thinking about how you're going to serve those communities in the future. So yeah, I, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And speaking of the the, the Wharton uh, Digital Health Pulse podcast, um, you, you mentioned, yeah, being able to talk to some pretty amazing people. And it, I am constantly impressed and amazed by the people you interview and the, the quality of those interviews. So I, you know, you, you joked, oh, we're, you know, we're not good enough for them. And I, uh, it's pretty clear to me with how much uh, passion you guys put into it and how, how high quality they are. I, I, I disagree. I think that they are exactly <laughs> the level for you guys. Can you tell well, me? Thank so you. I, yeah. yeah. Um, just a nice cross pollination there with these podcasts, but yeah. I'm curious. Yeah. So the, I, I, at least looking through the ones that you've done too, that, you know, caught my eye and I think were some of the major ones you did were with, uh, Dan Trigub, is that how you pronounce yep. it? of yep. Uber Health and then Nancy Yu of RDMD. Um, so yeah, I just want to kind of give you the floor to chat about, you know, either those conversations or some of the things you learned from them. Um, I think, yeah, it'd be really interesting to hear. Yeah. Dan and Nancy are both incredible figures. Um, Uber Health in particular right now is doing a ton of work in response to COVID-19 with helping transport uh, healthcare workers to the front lines and first responders and getting food delivered to people who are working the late night shifts to take care of all of us. So really incredible work there. And Nancy was actually a Wharton alum. Uh, and so it was cool to get her perspective on how Penn has influenced her views. But I think, you know, all of these people have started great businesses. Others in the lineup on my end include the COO of Quartet Health, uh, the CSO of Village MD and the CEO of Maven Clinic. And I can already tell across all those conversations, there's always this common thread of everyone's leadership stories. And I've been grateful that each of these guests is very vulnerable with how they've gotten feedback in the past and how that's influenced how they think about managing people through crazy periods of growth and ambiguity mm -hmm. and now crisis. And so, you know, Dan and Nancy in particular always end our, they ended the conversations with the most important thing as we're launching a new venture is the people. Because when hmm. you're doing really hard um, work, oftentimes working, uh, you know, heading, what is, what is the idiom? Heading into tailwinds. Is that it? 
maybe edit this piece out. <laughs> um, <laughs> headwinds, maybe. I think tailwind is behind not you. Tailwind. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, one interesting theme across all of these guests is when you're building a new venture, you know, you're oftentimes working outside of the confines of regulatory guardrails or you're entering white space and trying to create a product there. The most important thing you could have in your toolkit is passionate people who you can trust to challenge you and not just be your yes men. So surrounding yourself with a diverse team that values each other's perspectives, knows how to cover each other's blind spots as you're launching different strategies and products and programs is really critical. And so I think, you know, going back to your question around why MBA, why Wharton, that has been a really critical piece for me here. Like, how do you work with really diverse teams? Wharton is so, it places such an emphasis on team learning. I've had too many group projects and sometimes it's painful. <laughs> um, but like that experience is going to be really valuable move forward. You can read about healthcare. You can read about new policy releases. You can read about different business models and create slides on what might work and what, what might not. But at the end of the day, it comes down to executing with a team. And um, I think that's what's really inspiring about all these leaders is they've had different journeys on how to learn it, learn how to manage people through that. Yeah, I think that is, it's cool when you start to see after you've interviewed so many cool people to see commonalities and a lot of the similar uh, advice that they have to give and a lot of takeaways that they learn. Um, that's what I think a lot of the value is in having these conversations is, you know, I think obviously people have to cut their teeth and get experience and learn their own personal lessons of leadership and of, you know, uh, you know, founding companies or whatever it might be, but it certainly helps if you can kind of, uh, avoid some of the, some of the pitfalls yeah. and barriers that other people came into. Um, if you can hear from them rather than having to repeat it, it'll save you a lot of time in the long run. Yeah. 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 So the, so the podcast itself will certainly promote it and link off to some of those episodes and the blog, um, as well, which I think is always a wonderful compliment to the, all those, um, those episodes. But I think, um, since we're, we're coming up, um, on close to the end of our time here, but I, I definitely wanted to give you the floor to highlight something that you're passionate about that you, you shared at the one Wharton week, which was, mm -hmm. you know, we've, we've already talked about it to some extent, but you, you have, now clearly these two passions in both the digital health world and making sure that we're remembering to um, serve and make sure that these tools are applicable to underserved populations. And you gave a really compelling argument um, about why that's so important. So I just wanted to give you the floor and you can feel comfortable to as much or as little as you'd like to say on that topic. Um, just kind of what, 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 what we should take away as people are developing these tools um, to always be mindful of that. Um, yeah, I think, the quick backstory here that I shared at one Wharton week, or perhaps I didn't, a lot of the reason why I care about marginalized populations and inequities and solving for those inequities using business and technology is very much due to my upbringing. So my dad, as I shared earlier, is from Sri Lanka. And if I'm not sure if listeners have any idea of Sri Lankan political history, but it's a tiny island country off the coast of India that went through about a quarter century long civil war where the ethnic majority was persecuting the, the ethnic minority and my family belonged to the ethnic minority. So my dad actually in his early 20s fled the country, ended up going to med school in India, met my mom, had a great love story and immigrated to the US. But growing up, I would often hear these really alarming stories about 
you know, the government taking away rights from the ethnic minority just because, and, you know, his family members and our friends getting kidnapped and raped and held at gunpoint. And anyway, um, all that to say certainly influenced how I thought about equity, equality, what the government's role in creating an equitable environment is. And I think that's why I care so much about it today. Like my identity and worldview is so shaped by kind of that concept of being othered and how other populations might feel that way today. So I think technology can be both a powerful and a disheartening tool in this space. What I shared at One Morton Week is I feel like a lot of venture-backed companies and a lot of innovation is built for people on the coast, for the worried well who without those solutions would probably be just fine. And then there's this large gap for people, whether it's non-urban areas or lower income people, minorities, et cetera, that have uh, very poor health outcomes and no solutions targeting them. And so, um, you know, I say technology can be both powerful and alarming here because I think technology is actually starting to widen the inequality gap a lot more in the U.S. For example, at one of my prior companies, we had to shut off technologies for Medicare and Medicaid populations at the expense of commercially insured populations still having access to the technology. And so I felt like that was widening the inequality gap quite significantly. That has since been resolved, but, um, you know, inspired this interest in using technology to actually help marginalized populations. The cool thing about technology is you can deliver the same quality of care probably at a lower cost through automation, through workflow efficiencies, whatever it is, through smarter care planning. And the the thing that I find frustrating is that we haven't just quite put those models to work. We haven't applied technology to start staring those ugly issues like zip code inequality, socioeconomic inequality, racial inequalities in the face. Um, Perhaps that's because those issues are very much shaped at the policy level. Like you can't leverage technology to improve both, you know, care outcomes from diabetes and health literacy for someone that may have had 20 plus years of poor access to education. And so um, I think technologists and business leaders will have to work hand in hand with the government to be able to create these really favorable environments for solutions to actually work for marginalized populations. Um, unfortunately, I feel like a lot of states are undercutting access to care and making it harder for people that already have systemic barriers to get the care they need by cutting funding, by especially now with hospital revenue plummeting because of elective procedures getting canceled, et cetera, hospitals closing, states refusing to expand funding. And so I think hopefully over the next year, we don't come out with sore wounds from revealing that vulnerable populations suffer the the most during crises like these. Um, So we'll see. Yeah. And I think it's all really important to keep in mind. And I'm I'm grateful that we have thoughtful people like you that are at least, you know, shaping their career around these, these very difficult conversations and to reflect a bit on, I guess, the, my limited clinical exposure I think that is, it is one common frustration when a lot of these tools and companies are introduced um, Mm -hmm. to either physicians or administrators or hospital systems is because a lot of these really cool, innovative ideas tend to come from people who have a background where they're relatively well off and, you know, maybe they have a smartphone, have access to internet and 
a computer. And so a lot of these maybe digital health technologies in particular, um, the solutions just seem, tone deaf isn't the right way of uh, framing it, but just seem far less accessible to a lot of the patients that we take care of. And so I think that's Mm -hmm. where a lot of the kind of uh, throwing up the hands comes from, from the perspective of, of clinicians. And really all that says to me is that it's just important that you know, both these innovators and people working at these various companies and startups and the clinicians are actively engaging and continuing meaningful conversations about how, you know, the products can genuinely be useful and actually serve the patients who need the most. Yeah, I think perhaps one good piece of news is that the digital health landscape has exploded over the last 10 years, such that, and most of them have, well, I won't say most of them, Several of the more popular names have direct-to-consumer models that are targeting the commercially insured population or selling into employers. So again, similar population of like probably white collar worried well. And I think we're hitting a saturation point of selling into those parties. And so this has now caused a lot of companies and leaders to pivot and say, okay, now let's tackle the real problems when we're spending, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars on you know, cancer drug development or, you know, caring for vulnerable populations, but them still suffering lower outcomes. Um, I think now is kind of this turning point where people are starting to look at building companies around alternative payment models or technologies that can help social workers really impact vulnerable people's care. A lot more cool solutions are going to emerge, hopefully now, Um, but time will tell. Yeah, well, there's certainly one thing is for sure, and that's that there's still a lot more work to be done. So that's uh, yeah. good for us in that there'll always be work that, yeah. that we can take Seriously. on and hopefully meaningful work. Um, but just to wrap up, we we talked a little bit beforehand, um, before we started recording about kind of how coronavirus has been impacting both of us and kind of mm-hmm. you your summer plans and how you're, you're currently with a VC firm, and then you'll be transitioning into doing um, some product development or a project management with Verily. And so I think I'll, I'll let you uh, interpret the question however you'd like, which is it might seem difficult right now to be thinking about the future with so much uncertainty, but what is something that you are particularly looking forward to in the coming years? Yeah, I think for me, it feels like business school or at least graduate school, whether that was med school, as I shared earlier on, or now Wharton has felt like the last milestone that was planned in life. And so now that I'll be done with that, I feel like I'm unlocking this gate to what my career really is going to be. So we'll have tried out consulting, we'll have tried out startups, we'll be doing product development, you know, VC. And so I think the next few years will feel like I can go somewhere and be more settled. And instead of just dabbling to try something and learning about a different market, it'll, it'll be actually driving value and, you know, hopefully taking something innovative zero to one and whether that's at a really big company or a small startup or at a venture capital firm, I'm just really excited to like settle down a little bit and, and hunker down and focus on some like a, a narrow set of core issues and drive value there. Yeah, no, no doubt. I think, you know, I, I I've, was always pretty certain that I was going to end up doing clinical practice, even when I started the MBA, but just, you know, it, it is crazy being in uh, the student and I'm continuing to be a student shoes, but being in a business student shoes where you talk to people who are going into such different fields. I mean, within the, I mean, within the medical world, there's enough things you can do. I think in terms right. of specialties and decisions and 
branch points, but within the business world, I mean, forget about it. You have, you know, one moment you're talking to someone who's going into real estate world, someone's going to work in a bank, someone's founding a company. There's just, yeah, like unlimited opportunity there. And so I think it is, yeah, it's, it's both really exciting in terms of looking at all the things that are out there and all the things you can see yourself doing in the future. And then kind of being set loose now, you know, that's kind of, it sounds like what you're excited about is now it's like, all right, great. Now it's like, go, go do it. You're off the leash right. in a way. Yep. I think <laughs> another cool thing is not only are, am I doing, having this experience of, okay, the gate is unlocked individually, but everyone is. And so I see this cool moment where all of us are exploding in different directions and it's going to be really awesome to maintain friendships and connections with everyone I've met at Wharton. Um, as we all kind of go on our individual career paths and start building value in our own little niche spaces. Um, I feel like that's when I learn the most when I'm talking to someone about something I am totally green on and also looking forward to that. Agreed. And I'm particularly excited to keep in touch with you and to see where things are. Yeah, happen. likewise. So thank you thanks. for having me, Ryan. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing your thoughts. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to our generous donors, Dr. Wong, Dr. Slevin, Dr. Anand, and Dr. Wills. For more information about Penn HealthX, check out our website, penhealthx.com. There, you can also find our blog, where we write about the events we host and the lessons we learn from speakers. To get in touch, you can email penhealthx at gmail.com. Keep an eye out for future episodes. See you then.